Welcome to Easy Jazz Spotlight, produced by Easy Jazz FM. She's worked with the best, including Burt Bacharach, Carol King, and Neil Diamond, appeared on the Perry Como Show, once sang the warm-up for Dave Brubeck, produced jingles and commercials, and had her own great albums starting in 1959. The multi-talented Anne Phillips is in conversation with Easy Jazz Spotlight special guest host and jazz artist John Armato. The two will be talking about music and live TV in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Anne's amazing career, her current role as a vocal coach for aspiring singers, and her creation of New York City's Christmas pageant, The Jazz Nativity. Here now is John Armato. Hi, I'm John Armato for Easy Jazz FM, and today I'm sitting down with vocalist Ann Phillips. Ann was barely in her 20s when she recorded Born to be Blue in 1959. By 1961, stations were nudging jazz off the air to make, uh, make way for rock and roll, and Born to be Blue seemingly vanished. But in reality, it just slipped into the shadows and became a cult classic. It was reborn, just as blue as ever, decades later in a re-release, thanks only to a sound engineer who snuck a copy of the master tape out of the original recording uh, studio session back in the day. It's a desert island pick of an album for me. It's lush, it's orchestral, it's lyrical, and it's the perfect accompaniment for a good romance, a good drink, and honestly, even just a good cry. And its creator is a desert island pick of a person. Ann Phillips went on to become an astonishingly accomplished composer, arranger, conductor, singer, producer, working in commercial music, jazz, and even opera. And she also created the Jazz Nativity and the Children's Jazz Choirs, which we're going to talk about. And she certainly went on to become a good friend of mine and has connections to both the most veteran and legendary guests on my recent album, The Drummer Loves Ballads, that's Houston Person and Warren Vachey I'm speaking of, as well as the youngest and most arresting guest, Lucy Winans. I want to take advantage of our time together to talk about those relationships, play one of Anne's own exquisite tracks, and more. Thank you, Anne, for your friendship and for your amazing music and for joining me to tell a few stories today. Welcome. Thank you for your friendship and <laughs> the wonderful time we have had. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's always great when we're together and it's never often enough. I want to start with um, 1959. 1959 was a hell of a good year for jazz. Uh, that was when Time Out by Dave Brubeck was released. That was when Kind of Blue by Miles Davis was released. And it was also when You're Born to be Blue was released. I'm curious, how did you go from a young girl in the suburbs of Pennsylvania to being a part of this incredible uh, year of creativity in jazz and in the heart of uh, New York City? Oh. I didn't really know anything about jazz when I was a kid because my parents didn't really have that. My mother listened to opera on Sunday and Saturday afternoons. My father liked John Philip Sousa. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the but, combination. Yes. But a funny thing happened when I was a senior in high school. I won't tell you the story, but by really odd Thing. My my sister used to draw pictures of people that were coming into Reading, Pennsylvania. And we went out to find one who was coming in that was Doodles Weaver from the Spike Jones Orchestra. Uh. 
<laughs> and there he was with a, a local piano player, Binky D, sitting there having their drinks. And he said, what do you um, want to do when you grow up? I said, well, I want to be a singer. And I sang something. And out of that came... Um, he was. There, he had a friend who was looking for somebody who was be a second in a five voice vocal group, a really hip vocal group. And so all of a sudden, here I was, a senior in high school, wow. realizing that no wonder I wasn't part of the whole high school kind of scene. This was my scene. It was right. the jazz musician. So every twice a week, I would go and drive into the inner city and rehearse with this really hip jazz group. And so that was really the start of it. And I went on to Oberlin College, but with nobody directing me, I was in the college, not the conservatory, but I became... The singer with the big band had my own radio show playing sing songs and singing. And then when we brought in the Brubeck uh, Quartet for a concert at Finney Chapel, I was the other act on that. <laughs> That's when I first met Dave Brubeck. And when I came to New York after that, I... I married a jazz musician, bass player, but he played with a group that played at Birdland between the acts. Oh. And so I saw everybody and they yes. recorded with at Rooney Van Gelder's before he had the big studio. And so I met all kinds of, I mean, I saw Charlie Mingus and Bud Powell. And so that sort of led to my, the jazz part of my life, even though I was not into heavy jazz when I was in high school because I didn't know anything about it. Well, it sounds to me like it wasn't a very gradual transition. It seems to me you went pretty full throttle pretty quickly. Let, let's talk about a couple of things here. Uh, one is the, the Oberlin jazz at Oberlin recording by Dave Brubeck, of course, is famous. And uh, that was a delight for me to learn many years later that this album I'd been listening to, you, you had an indirect uh, connection to, uh, or rather direct connection to, um, if I if if I understand the history correctly, Brubeck kind of invented the college tour. I mean, there wasn't a lot of that going on at the time. Were you aware of how unusual it might have been to be bringing in artists like this? And well, know, I wasn't the head of the jazz program. A guy named Jim Newman, who was from California and had seen Dave out there, was the one that approached the college to do this concert at Finney Chapel. And I must tell you that the conservatory would not let a jazz player bang on one of their pianos. <laughs> no, no good instruments allowed for the jazz players. <laughs> <laughs> and years, some years later, when Oberlin did a whole calendar of every year, the big thing at Oberlin, 1953 was the Dave Brubeck concert, Dave Brubeck at Oberlin. And, he, and Jim wrote this letter and said, let's not... Um, uh, mess up with history because the dean had called him in about how dare they let Oberlin be on the cover wow. of an album. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, now they do have a jazz department. And actually, yeah. I went out for two things. I went out for um, a wonderful um, Brubeck concert, and I sang on that one with the, uh, the Brubeck Quartet, and also the building of the jazz department, which is hooked over with a bridge to the classical department. Uh, oh, my gosh. My, how things have changed, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, well, we're going to talk about change here in a second, um, but I, I want to connect the dots. So you, you were performing at Oberlin, you had these great experiences, and then what was it that actually 
prompted your move to New York City? Well, I even wrote a song about it. It starts, I was a kid the night that I woke and cried. Take me to New York City, please. Let's ride to New York. That was my nirvana. And um, that was the truth. I really did wake up one night and my mother came up to the room and said, what's the matter? Because I was crying. She said, and I said, you never take me to New York City. You only take me to Philadelphia. All my friends have been to New York City. So after I, I left Oberlin, went to New, uh, New England Conservatory, and then decided I needed to be in a bigger city. And so there was no question I was yeah. going to, to New York. You just, you just knew. So when you got there, and you, you met um, uh, this, this uh, jazz bassist who became your husband. And Not you started, uh, oh, Okay. So you, when, you, when you got there, if I remember correctly from our previous conversations, you started uh, working singles in a lot of clubs, yep. right? And, and describe the scene at that time. Because, you know, in my mind, I'm 58 years old. I, I didn't get to see that firsthand. But when I think about the 50s in New York, I think about Swing Street. And I think about there being clubs everywhere and open till the wee hours. Mm-hmm. Set the scene for, for me and for everybody watching this interview. What was it like to be a part of that world? Well, somehow or other, there was a woman, Jean Rose, who booked clubs. And most of them were restaurants with pianos in them because all of the restaurants had them and wanted a piano player singer. So I worked six nights a week. Oh, my gosh. Six hours a night. I was going to say, these were long nights, too, weren't they? (laughs) From um, nine to three or ten to four. (laughs) (laughs) And that was just me, just me on piano and singing. And, now, uh, when you when you first got those gigs, this may be an odd question. Did you have enough repertoire to sustain a six hour gig? I mean, or you must have been uh, learning tunes right and left. Well, when I was a kid, I, I studied first with Mix Ongstadt, who was a real swinger. And um, sometime after that, I got switched to a man who taught popular and he got me an illegal um, fake book. They were illegal. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so I used to just sit there and play song after song and take them down into the key that I could sing them in. And I just learned millions of tunes. And then people kept requesting tunes. So I know a lot of tunes. <laughs> <laughs> now, at some point, you made a transition from being the girl singer at the piano in the restaurant and working clubs to um, working heavily in uh putting together backing vocalists for demo sessions, uh, writing and arranging for jingles, uh, for albums, uh, all the demo scene, all that sort of stuff. Was there a particular point that sort of connected you from those piano gigs to working as a creator in the studio? Well, I think the first thing was that at that time, if you were a singer who could read music and learn fast, there was work. There were television shows. The first one I did was Jack and the Beanstalk and Joel Gray's first TV appearance. Is that right? Oh, my gosh. And uh, But loads of those. And then I finally got on the Perry Como show with the Ray Charles singers. And you realize in those days, those shows were done in a week. I mean, you'd go in on Wednesday for a run through of all the music, Thursday, Friday, get hair and makeup on Saturday morning and the show was on. And there were specials that were crazy because those were all done in a week. And um, and because 
I could do that. I could read music. Um, I did a lot of that. And then that led to recording sessions, which is also meaning going into a recording session and you got the music and in three hours you did three tunes and, you know, one run through with the band and the singers and, and the singers, uh, this was all live. This is the wonderful yeah. thing because we weren't making tracks for somebody to add to two months later. Right. We were all in the room and the, feeling in the room when you knew you just had a great take was wonderful. And the camaraderie was extraordinary. And well, there were things that happened. Well, and you, and you worked with some amazing names uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the couple that come to mind that I think, uh, you know, I've talked about before, Burt Bacharach, Carol King, some of those kinds of books, drop a few more names. I think people would be fascinated to hear who you worked with and, and what kinds of projects, what, what those experiences were like. <laughs> Well, the demos were wonderful because most of them were done at one or two, one of two or three small studios. And I took a um, demo of me singing into one where I went up high at the end of Surrey with the fringe on top. And I got a call right away that said, can you do obligados? And of course, I said, yes, though, I'm not a soprano, but I figured I could do whatever. And for and our non-musician listeners, define <laughs> obligato. Yes, <laughs> that's going up high <laughs> and reading the music that they had written. Yeah. And that was my first demo. And that led to all the demos for the new young songwriters that Don Kirshner and Al, Al Nevins, who had all done music uh, publishing signed all of these kids from Brooklyn. And that was Carol King and Jerry Goffin wow. and Ellie Greenwich and her husband and um, uh, Jeff Berry. And I mean, it was just extraordinary. So I was doing those and then always doing all three part harmonies for those. And um, one that is out there that you can hear is it might as well rain until September that Carol did, and she wrote all the string parts and everything. Really? And that session was funny because it was scheduled, I think, from eight, um, eight to 11 and went on to about one. <laughs> well, I was eight months pregnant at the uh. time. I was. And um, on the way home back to New Jersey, I began to get pains. Oh, no. <laughs> and we went off to uh, the um, hospital. Where they fortunately saw him down, but my third child, my son Alec, writes his bio as it was a storm and rainy night on a Carol King session when I almost came into the room. <laughs> <laughs> Just short of being born in a trunk, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it all that's worked great. like that, you know. I yeah. mean, Carol certainly did. If you read her book, she yeah. Was Pregnant. Well, <laughs> and this this is the kind of question that can only come in retrospect. But did you, or to your knowledge, people like Carol herself and others, did you have a sense that this was sort of a new era of music and that, that these were people who were about to make it big? Or was this just sort of a workaday thing you did as a musician and all that came later was sort of a surprise? I mean, what, what was your sense of where this fit into your life and others? Well, things were changing. There was, I mean, the funny thing is, is that I had not been brought up on Bill Haley and the comments. I sort of turned myself away from that. However, it was the doggy in the window era when I was in high school. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what really led me to be able to do the jingles was doing all of those sessions for the new kids from 
from Brooklyn, which were Carol and Ellie and all of the yeah. fact when Leader of the Pack, which was written by Ellie Greenwich, and sometime later they made a show out of that. And I took my kids to that downtown and Ellie met them afterwards and she said to them, I am your prenatal influence. <laughs> <laughs> that was so yeah. uh, i love it well we've been talking a lot about other people's music but and you mentioned brooklyn a couple times here and the the cover of uh, born to be blue was famously shot uh in brooklyn and mm. it has sort of this romantic but gritty urban feel to it and um uh, but I think the reality is you were nauseous uh, and with, I think you were pregnant at the time you did the cover shoot and probably <laughs> there were, there were rats running around your feet and all this sort of stuff. But uh, so yeah, all is not what it appears, but let's talk about born to be blue for a second. You've described working in the restaurants and the, the session work and everything. Uh, what led to you having the opportunity to record as a leader, to record your own project? Well, I wasn't a leader. We didn't look at it that way. Okay. Making my own record. I wasn't paying for it. I got signed. And that was a, a B-movie story because one of the demos I did, other than the demos for Carol and Jerry and all those people, was a man named Vladimir Solinsky, who wrote uh, music for Craft Music Hall. And he had had some lyrics written to some of the beautiful themes he had written. And the, one of the studios that I did demos in called me and said, I think you should do this. I think you're the right singer for this. And I did. And there were three really beautiful, but not rock tunes, very different tunes. And a couple of months later, I got a call from the studio that said, call Joe Reisman over at Roulette Records. He wants to talk to you. And he had a song that he had in his mind to do an album called Lonelyville. And so I went in. He And the wonderful thing was he gave me a great arranger, Kermit Levinsky. Mm. And we got together, decided on the tunes. And the record was recorded, which was extraordinary because it was a full string section, Doc <laughs> Simpson on trumpet, uh, oh know, my gosh, O.C. Johnson, Milt Hinton. I mean, it was the best in the world. Wow. And, and the curious thing was that just as they were about to um, press it, um, they discovered that somebody had used Lonelyville as a title and a title song of another album. So they turned it over. And that was Born to be Blue, which made me much happier. Oh, wow. So they, so Born to be Blue was originally going to be the B-side of this yes. thing. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Well, that that's a real, hey, kid, I'm going to make you a star kind of story. You literally got a call, said, call this guy, and next yep. thing you know, you're, you're in the studio. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Well, you know, let's use this as a moment to introduce people to, uh, the album. Yeah. I had asked you what, what cut you'd like to play as, as a, uh, a track off of that. So let's take a listen now to, I don't want to walk without you off of born to be blue by Ann Phillips in 1959. All my friends keep knocking at my door. They've asked me out a hundred times or more, but all I say is leave me in the gloom, and here I'll 
turn off all the you about that tune a couple of things one is I, I love it for for me it has so many things that i adore about this kind of music and about ballads it's got that beautiful rubato introduction of course the orchestra is great the lyrics are great the melody is irresistible but one of the things that really strikes me is you've got this beautiful string section and you've got this orchestral thing going on but the rhythm section is just kind of chugging along like a great little jazz quartet Mm -hmm. um and i don't remember all the personnel but uh mundo low on guitar if i remember correctly and i he's kind of doing that freddie green thing he's just got those beautiful quarter note chords and but who was on piano because i just think on this track in particular those little tinkling fills are just gorgeous bernie layton well it's his name but he certainly was a very busy person here uh, is it what made you want to uh, use this as a track off the album for us to listen to today? Is it particularly close to your heart for some reason? Well, I love the verse and that has a verse. And I think verses set up songs so well, and most of them are good. Most of the lyricists that wrote them, it's like my funny Valentine. Nobody yeah. knows what that is unless you know what the verse is. Exactly. And there's yeah. so many like that. And I loved this verse. And so that's why when you asked me, I just, that's what popped into my mind. And I think it's one that Lucy Wines liked best too. Oh, that's a great. Well, we've got to talk about Lucy in a second, but before I forget, I want to tell people that uh, thankfully, thanks to that uh, engineer who thought to make a, 
illicit copy of the oh. uh, the master born to be blue is uh, is still available so you can go to amazon and i would encourage people to uh, buy the real deal um uh, you can certainly stream it but musicians don't make any money on streaming so uh <laughs> if you want to support Anne and keep this this classic available to everybody uh it's on amazon.com and um uh recommend that you buy it you can also learn more about all of Ann's career on annphillips.com and, and uh, I encourage you to check that out. But you mentioned Lucy Winans. And so let's, let's uh, shift a little bit. And this is a little self-interest for me, but you were a great help to me on my album uh, that I released a couple of years ago called the drummer loves ballads. And uh, you have a connection to the most legendary veteran uh, guest artist on that album and the youngest shining star on that, that, that album. So let's start with Lucy, who's just in her twenties um, and who I've known since she was a toddler. Cause her, her mom is actually a high school friend of mine. Her mom is also who introduced you and I, it was, That's she true. was our mutual friend, but uh, talk to me about your work these days in coaching young up and coming artists, how you work with them, uh, how you, you first started working with Lucy and and, and what you see in her work. Well, I think Lucy was about 12 when they moved to this New York area. I had known her since she was little, but uh, when they moved here, she decided to study with me and trained in every day, every week to work with me. I think one of the most important things I learned about, besides vocal stuff, and I had a wonderful teacher, Nancy Collier, who uh, really... I wasn't ever thinking to be a voice teacher, but when I got a call from NYU and kids began calling me saying, you're supposed to be my voice teacher, I just went and did what Nancy Soren, her name is now, taught me, and that's what I did. That part of it was one thing. The other part of it, I really believe I learned from Mabel Mercer. Funny thing is that when I was playing in clubs, I was... 19. And I remember being in a club where a man came up to me and said, little girl, you should go in the back room and hear that lady. And I went back in the back room and it was Mabel Mercer. <laughs> well, I didn't get it. She really wasn't a singer singer. Thank heaven I learned. I lived long enough to get it. <laughs> Mabel Mercer, I heard on a, a wonderful interview with Eileen Farrell. And Eileen Farrell asked her how she prepared to learn a new song. Mm -hmm. She said, I begin by talking the lyrics and talking the lyrics. Talking the lyrics. Talking the lyrics. And about three months later, I start to sing the song. No <laughs> well, kidding. Yes. And I will tell you, having a student talk the lyrics, not looking up in the air, what's the line, because if I can't remember the lyrics, because how's the melody go there? Uh, no. Tell me what the lyrics are. Talk those lyrics. Slow down. Talk them. Mm. I don't want to walk without you, baby. You know, and it's it's just amazing. I had one young man, actually it was a guitarist with a big rock group who wanted to sing. And I did um, Polka Dots and Moonbeams. And after every phrase, I said, and then what happened? And why did he uh. do that? And then what did he think? He was crying by the end of the of that one time through. Oh my and gosh. the difference in somebody's understanding of what they're singing in that 
once through, forget it, if you're doing it for three months. But I had to do it. I did an album with all my favorite people like Dave Brubeck and and Mary McPartland and Dave Frischberg and Mike Calloway. And some of them, like Dave and Roger and Marion, wanted me to do one of their tunes. Well, these weren't tunes that I did all the time. So I had to follow my own advice. Right. Talk those lyrics. Sounds like it's all about learning what the story is. The story Absolutely. comes first. Absolutely. You know, it, it makes me think I, there are singers I've heard over the years that are interesting, have great vocal quality, maybe a wonderful tone, but I don't care for their phrasing. And it seems to me so much of the time phrasing has to do with whether or not the story makes sense. Are they, yeah. are they, are they telling me the story in a way where, you know, the line breaks occur naturally and the sort of thing. Do you, do you think that's accurate? Do you think the storytelling piece is what drives good phrasing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you realize that you, in jazz, you have that freedom. In classical music, and that was one of the hardest things, I've had a couple of classical singers who are taught to do it exactly as the music was written. Mm-hmm. And to be able to give them the realization that they have the freedom to say, all oh, my friends keep walking at the dark and knocking at the door. You have that time. You don't have to do dum de dum de dum Right. And um, it gives them so much freedom. I did a whole master class for opera singers. I was surprised to be asked to do it. (laughs) But but, yeah, about, and three of them picked wings. One of them brought body and soul. And he didn't ever know that there was words to that. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. You know, you're, you, I I think of you as sort of a, um, an advocate, an avatar, a uh, proselytizer for singing, uh, because as, as you know, the last time I was in New York and saw you earlier this year, we were having lunch and having this conversation in, in which I uh, persisted that I cannot sing. And you said, yes, you can. And I said, no, I can't. And you said, yes, I can. And so we went back to your apartment and, and you gave me a, a vocal lesson on the spot, which, which uh, surprised me with the lack of true awfulness. <laughs> 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 but but uh, I've been struck before by your commitment to this belief that more people can sing than think they can sing. And that no. singing is a, a bit of a lost uh, sort of personal art. And, and, and what I'm getting at is I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your children's jazz choir project, because that is amazing to me that you take time to go out into at-risk communities, inner city schools, and this sort of thing. And kids who have probably never heard jazz and probably don't know what pitch is, and you teach them how to sing and yep. teach them that they can sing. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's so much fun with that. First of all, with grown-ups, scratch the surface and you find out who said in their, when they were in the uh, a play in school, just move your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first person I met, the woman said, she said, I can't sing. And I said, you know, can you uh, can you talk? Yes. Go like this, Bob. She went, Bob. I said, you can sing. And, <laughs> and then it turned out that in first grade, the teacher had gone around and she'd had each little girl sing. And she'd say, you're a singer. You're a singer. You're a listener. You're a singer. You're oh, my a- gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, I knew that she had this low voice even when she was in first grade. So the teacher didn't 
She couldn't sing those high notes that little girls are supposed to sing. And that stopped her singing for the rest of her life. That's really sad. Yeah. And I have found more people like that. And I will tell you, in a half an hour, 20 minutes, I can sing, have them singing Rogers and Hart. <laughs> and with well, how, how did the children's jazz choir come about? How did you formalize well, this idea? Uh, well, the idea really came out of the jazz nativity because about the fourth year of the jazz nativity, we saw the kids loved it so much. And I started something called the Jazz Nativity Children's Project, where anybody could sponsor a kid to come see the show. And then I would call up Boys and Girls Club, Covenant House, Children's Village, and say, we have room for 30 of your kids. You are responsible for transportation, chaperone, but, you know, and we'll meet you at the door. And, oh, my God, they loved it so much. And after that, somebody also uh, at a church had a reading program. And they thought it would be fun for the kids in the summertime after a a morning of studying reading to have a little singing. And that was the first of the jazz choirs. And what I did there was do the vocal warm-ups, galp, 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 gobby, (laughs) I recall. And then then I'd say, okay, now, when you're going to sing together and it's a bunch of people, everybody's going to be at the same note at the same time now. Don't say anything. Just listen. And then hear this in your head. And when I go, bop, you all sing it to me. So I do that now. Bop, now hear it in your head. And the whole room, 50 kids, bop, right on it. And you don't mean a thing if it ain't. (laughs) And so, and and literally up in uh, Rye, where this wonderful reading program was, the first thing was that the reading experts up there discovered how incredible this was for their reading skills. The, Learning, the singing helped their reading. Leading, reading these great lyrics. Oh, like blue guys smiling on me, you know, um, all these great songs. And the other thing was that I unfortunately discovered through this that a lot of them had never heard a melody because they they were hearing rap and heavy metal. Yeah, and it sounds like an easy swipe of music that, that, you know, a lot of us don't prefer compared to jazz. But there is there are musical differences. You you don't get melody lines um, or at least not particularly complex or recognizable lines. And there's a there's vocal styling today that uh, entails the vocalist never actually landing on a pitch. It just feels like there's a constant um, movement going on. And that, I know I'm going to sound like the grouchy old man, man, but you know uh, I think that's the case. So, so I yeah, just, this this is really new to kids. No, I just found out that now uh, when they're singing on stage, they can just talk, and the guy on the piano can play the notes, and the video the the singing will correspond to those notes so it'll sound like they're singing Ah. talking Ah! but i I had one kid that said tell me where i go wrong i had a kid that was wonderful and i thought i got a real ace here he's gonna be great and all of a sudden the next time i went up it was a mess he said well tell me where i go wrong and he starts blue skies smiling at me nothing but blue skies do i say i said that's singing that's talking yeah yeah. And he, he didn't know the difference. That, I mean, this is, I, I would say, important work you're doing. And it's not just interesting and fascinating for those of us who, are, uh, who believe in the music. 
but it seems like uh, preserving an important piece of culture here um, that, that people be able to sing. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that this grew out of the jazz nativity, and I want to go back to that and make sure that we talk about the jazz nativity for people who aren't um, uh, aware of it yet. But uh, this is a show that you created, produced, wrote the music for, and is in its, I want to say, 30 something a year. Yes. <laughs> yes. Really? Okay. Well, so, so talk about the jazz nativity, explain what it is to people. And I don't want you to leave out the story about how a rabbi saved Christmas. <laughs> okay. Well, it all began with John Garcia Gensel, who was the jazz um, minister at um, a Presbyterian church, a Lutheran church over at Lee's side. And everybody knew John. And John called me and said, I have suggested you as the writer of this, which surprised me because they knew me as a singer. But so I said, okay, and dove in. And so I used uh, Christmas Carol's original music. It starts off in the dark because I had just met my new husband, Bob Kindred, who was a tenor saxophone player with a warm, gorgeous mm. And so it starts in the dark with Silent Night. And uh, and then using carols and original music, all of the biblical stuff, and she brought forth her first son, child. I later wrote that for vocal group and soprano. Anyway, it is a full show in costume. And the next thing was to find the three kings who are going to present the gift of their talent. Ah. And, uh, well, we've had Lionel Hampton, Tito Puente, Terry. (laughs) This has got to be the hippest Christmas pageant ever. Yes. And the wonderful thing is that you don't have to be hip to love it. (laughs) (laughs) That is good news. Yes. No, people have come out of there and said, I didn't think I liked jazz, but if this is what jazz is, I love it. Because it is a show, it's in costume, and it's um, children love it, families love it. It's just, um, and it has grown every year. And we've done it in quite a few other cities. We're doing it in Utica. Uh, they've been doing it in North Carolina for years. There was somebody oh. who saw it, and they called me up. I was at um, Lincoln Center that year. <laughs> and... Um, Somebody called me up and said, can we get the music to that? And I shipped it down there. And that's what we've been doing. We had it for Shermer. The problem is that if it's not on television, and it's been closed several times, right. those weepy stories. Yeah. But, um, but and if it's not on television, nobody can imagine what it is. And, it, yeah, it's a good point. You know, I, and I've seen the show and I found it to be incredibly moving uh, you know, spiritually and emotionally and as, uh, and as exciting as rock and raucous as attending a second line performance in New Orleans. I mean, it's, it just is all up and down the spectrum and you're right. It, it can be very hard. It's like trying to explain to somebody what, what a blueberry tastes like. You just, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta taste it. You gotta try it. Uh, I, I, I hope people, cause there's still time you're performing it in, on the Upper West Side this, this year, right? Yes, on the 18th. And there are performances in North Carolina and in Chicago. Chicago. There's a man out there that's been doing it every year. And, um, but um, 
the thing that grew out of that was the Children's Jazz Project, because we saw how much people, how children loved it. And then to give the opportunity to inner city kids to see it. And so we formed that. And then we weren't in big enough places until this year to do it again. And so now we used to get three, 400 kids a year. And um, we were in a place that will hold 800 or more people. That's fabulous. Now, for those who who can't quite imagine it, are there video clips on your website or YouTube? Can people kind of go get a taste of it from past years? Yes. There's uh, jazznativity.org. That's one place. That's uh, And it's on Facebook. And it's on annphillips.com. That's great. (laughs) And now um, the the story, though, that I that I always just love is I'm going to get it wrong. So I'm just going to try and set you up. But I believe there was a a blizzard that affected your ability to perform in the planned venue and somebody came to your rescue. Uh, That wasn't the blizzard year. We were in St. Bartholomew's for quite some for about seven years. And then they decided not to have it there anymore. Ah. And that was rather late in the day, like October. So I couldn't find another church to do it. And my lawyer said, well, why don't you try a synagogue? I said, ah, are you kidding? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I had met um, the uh, emeritus uh, rabbi at Stephen Wise, and I called him Balfour Brickner. And he said, love it. Just love it. And he wrote the most beautiful piece about sharing our beliefs. Oh, my gosh. We did three or four shows there, and it was just gorgeous. That's just fascinating and lovely. Um, I have to tell you, one other Jewish story was Lou Soloff, who was the lead trumpet player. That's from God's Lou. And he was always the lead trumpet player in the band. Incredible. So one year I called him up. And I said, Lou, I'd really like you to be a king this year. And there was this silence. And he said, well, you know, Ann, <laughs> I don't know whether it's really right to me, but I said, what if we get you a beautiful yarmulke for a crown? He said, you got me. Oh, <laughs> you, had, you had me at yarmulke. <laughs> and it's hanging on my wall. It's all jeweled and embroidered and beautiful and so Lewis oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, speaking of things on your wall, I'm going to shift gears entirely here. Uh, and I know that you and I talked about this recently, but I have an obsession with the tune Here's to Life. Uh, and, of course, for me, it's the Shirley Horn recording that is just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I almost get emotional just thinking about it, much less hearing it. And you have a framed, handwritten manuscript by Artie Butler of yeah his composition here's the life talk about how that came to pass how how you know Artie. how i believe that he you were one of the very first people to hear his composition yes he played it for me over the phone he left, he was one of the jewish kids from brooklyn that left new york and made it big in la you know movie scores and all of that stuff but we were old friends and we Kept in touch all that time. And one night he called me up and said, Annie, listen to this. And he sang it to me. (laughs) (laughs) And playing piano sang it to me. And uh, I loved it. And then sometime uh, he invited me out there. And we were out. I was out in California. And he and I and Marilyn Jackson, another person, went from place to place playing it for people, counting how many minutes, seconds it took for somebody to cry. Yeah. 
I don't remember you ever telling me that before. And that that is, I, I can only imagine it wasn't very many seconds because it's not no. for me. No. And and then he put sent me, I have oh who is that from from uh, from Vegas? You know, the big guy at Vegas. Oh, now, Wayne Newton. Wayne Newton. I have a recording of Wayne Newton doing it in Vegas and introducing Artie and so forth. And then Artie did it with with um um Joe Williams at his house because oh. of the whole setup where he could do a, a an orchestra on the vi- on the sink. Or, right. So, yeah. Right. And, but other than that, it was I'd have to run over and look at the date because it was 1980 something. It was like 20 years before he got the Shirley Horn, and he called me up and said. Listen to this. And over the phone, I heard the show. He said, there's a space she will let such things go by, but I've gotten used to it. (laughs) (laughs) Surely did love her space. That is is true. Yeah. (laughs) And that was the first time that you heard of it. And then I recorded it with him on the Rhodes piano. Yeah. uh, My um, album ballet time that has all those different people and and ballet time is an album i uh, would love to recommend to people uh, of of ann's uh it, it's such a a beautiful collection of relationships you know that's yeah. you, you work with so many people from your career and, and your experiences as you mentioned dave brubeck and and i think roger Kellaway is maybe on there and some of those folks and bob it really Durow. is what's that who's that bob Durow and dave bob Durow. Durow. yeah <laughs> favorite people in the world so please please check that that album out uh, uh ballet time by ann phillips also available on her website and on amazon and, and it's really wonderful you know speaking of relationships you have been generous with your relationships in uh our relationship and when when i was working on my album uh, i had a vision of a duet with Houston Person and Warren Vachey, and I called you because I I had worked a, a couple of gigs with Warren when I lived in New York, but I didn't know Houston at all, and there would be no reason for Warren to have remembered me. But of course, they're they're friends of yours, and I said, "Do you think?" And he said, "Let me let me make a couple of calls," yeah. and uh, and he said, "Yeah, they're in," which which to this day gives me chills. But talk a little bit about your relationship with them and um, uh, the kinds of work that you've done with them or, or your your recollection and, and thoughts on their music and their careers and and that sort of thing. Well, the interesting thing is, is that when I was doing record dates, there wasn't much jazz going on in the 60s, 70s and so forth. Birdland closed, you know, Bohemia closed. Right. And, so and so all of those guys who read music, right, you know, like Clark Terry and um, sure. all of them were doing record dates. So I met all of those people during that time. I had met some of them before the Basie band. I heard of Birdland way back, you know, but I knew a lot of them. Selden Powell, I mean, all these people that were wonderful jazz musicians were doing record dates because there was very little jazz going on. And then uh, when I started doing the jazz activity, well, the people that I called, and I I loved Warren Vachey and yeah. his name, and he became a king. And well, that's right. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. He was a king. And I have the most beautiful uh, videos of uh, Lou Soloff and Warren, because at the end of the, the jazz nativity, the first part of it is the story that goes all the way through the the normal 
nativity pageant and winds up with Dave Brubeck's God's Love Made Visible, a 5-4 piece that his wife wrote the lyric to, which is just great. And then it goes into the celebration part, which is Deck the Halls. And I had first the New York Voices. Oh, boy. I saw them and gave them their second job in New York. I was booking some little. Oh, is that right? No kidding. Uh, Yeah. So I've known them since they got out of Ithaca College. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so um, I could use those people because I knew them. And then when I started getting kings and so forth, well, there were people that I knew. Yeah. And they all loved it. And I mean, I didn't know Tito Puente, for instance, but I realized I must know somebody that knows him. And then I realized I played tennis with Sal Negroni, who was the lawyer for Fania Records. Oh, my gosh. I love it. I called up Sal and said, hey, I really would like Tito Puente. This is about the second year of the jazz activity. And uh, he said, oh, here's his number. You know, it seems to me, and one of your characteristics is you're fearless. You're not afraid to pick up the phone. I mean, first of all, you know everybody, and the handful of people you don't know, you're not afraid to call. No, and he was so wonderful. And a few years later, his manager, who was a guy named Jack Hook, who talked like this, <laughs> he called me up and said, Ann, you're killing me. <laughs> you know to do this job. There's three nights. He can't. Oh, you can't have him. <laughs> oh, is that right? That's funny. Oh you can God. have him one night. And Tito did all three. Yeah. I mean, he just did. He was always in it. That would have been something to see. Well, we've been doing a lot of memory lane conversation, talking about the past and great memories and experiences. But um, I'm curious, who do you listen to today that excites you? Who gives you hope about? the state of the art, and uh, who do you just enjoy listening to for your own pleasure these days? Well, I think what's wonderful is that there are a lot of young singers who are really making a, a point in, in what they're doing. And and the wonderful thing is that Lucy, um, I mean, she won the Ella Fitzgerald Award. Right. And... They are they are really being heard. And yeah. the wonderful thing is that I could use her as Mary this year in the Jazz Nativity. That's so cool. And that's the first young singer that I've decided to do that with. And we Amazing. are in a place big enough to do it. And she's going to be wonderful. So that's one of the things. Yeah. Uh, also, I would say I listen to, do you know who Russ Kassoff is? I don't. Uh-uh. No, Educate me. Well, Russ has, is a great pianist, and he's played with Frank and Eliza. I mean, okay. time and so forth. And he has a thing called Jazz Deli, and he plays the most wonderful things. It's, it's a, um, from the college, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson College, on Saturdays at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, yesterday I heard something so beautiful, Detour Ahead, by a singer, oh. a singer named John Ferguson who I have never. Okay. I love that tune. Oh, well, you will never hear it as beautiful as this. If you Is go, that on, right? Yes, go on his, um, the, the archives of um, FDU. Okay. And <laughs> from yesterday, but I, I love hearing, and the, the, um, uh, the, the, Vocal Bobsters, the Royal Bobsters, are the group that has followed the uh, New York Voices as my vocal group in the show. Okay. And they 
done things with Sheila Jordan and all these wonderful people, their, their CDs. So people are doing a really a lot of interesting things. And, uh, and the, the Will Anderson and his brother, his two boy, brothers that both play saxophone, they're wonderful. And um, they're doing a lot together. There's I can always I can always count on you to give me great stories about <laughs> idols from the past, but also to turn me on to new music. So the the brothers, John Ferguson, I'll check them out. Everybody yeah. who's watching this interview, those are some new names for them to check out as well. Unfortunately, we uh, could talk for another three hours, but we've <laughs> we've spent an hour already and um, need to wrap things up. But uh, Ann Phillips, thank you so much for uh, the time you've taken to share some stories and share some new information. I'd like to encourage everybody to check out annphillips.com. Um, it's not too late to get tickets to the Jazz Nativity in New York City. I strongly encourage it. Go to uh, jazznativity.org for more information about that. And you can um, also sponsor a child. You don't have to be here to do that. That's a that's a great point. I've done it, and I encourage other people to do it. Uh, you you can kind of pick your commitment level, and and I, what is it, Anne? Like every twenty bucks will cover uh, an additional child's attendance. Every every twenty dollars <laughs> a child to do uh, sponsor them to see the show, and I will just tell you the response we got when we did it before was extraordinary. Well, it, it's an important work, and I love the idea of you creating this pathway for young people who might not otherwise be exposed okay. uh, to jazz to have that opportunity. So thank you for that work. I'm John Armato. You're listening to Easy Jazz FM, and you've uh, been enjoying, as I'm sure, uh, as I know I did, an hour with Ann Phillips. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> thank you. This has been another episode of Easy Jazz Spotlight. Don't forget to check out our music at easyjazz.fm.